everybody. Welcome to the American Songwriter Podcast Network. This is All Heart with Paul Cardall. Forbes magazine calls him one of the most listened to recording artists of our time, with more than 3 billion streams and 11 number one albums on top Billboard charts. With his podcast, Paul wants to shed light on unique celebrities and influencers who use their gifts to make the world a better place, like you. His guests are all heart. Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Cardall, and I am excited to welcome you to All Heart. Our guest today has a 30-year career in the entertainment industry. She's been in movies. She's been on TV. She was in anger management. She played uh, Shelby on Heart of Dixie, at countless shows. She is a top five Billboard recording artist with her music. And her original, original uh, show that she was in, she was the Elle Wood of Legally Blonde, the first cast for that. She was nominated for a Tony. She has got a lot of understudies of people that you are familiar with. Natalie Portman, Britney Spears have sought her out for help. So we're thrilled to welcome to the program, Laura Bell Bundy. Hi, how are you? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're fine. You're fine. You're here. You arrived. And so that's, I mean, you got accepted to New York University, but you turned it down because a soap opera called you and said they had a role for you to play on Guiding Light. I mean, like, that's like winning the lottery, I think, right? Who cares about NYU? I laugh. I laugh because it seems sort of ridiculous now when you hear it back coming back at you but so i i went to new york to go start my first year of college and i got a recurring role on this show well when i was recurring i could still um go to school but then they offered me a series regular and i had also was going to run um, cross country and track at nyu and the type of scholarship i was getting was requiring me to be a full-time student mm. so I had to make a choice do I want to so I deferred you and deferred. I'm like I'm gonna come back next year <laughs> um, and what's you know so I, I ended up going back actually not the next year but a few years later I went back and 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 did like literally a semester or something and then I was like I don't know why I'm doing this I'm a working actor now but um, <laughs> But I, my father had always said, I wasn't going to school for acting. I was going right. to school for, you know, something I could fall back on. Right. The patriarch was telling you. <laughs> yes. Be serious. Don't follow your dreams. Do, um, do, you do psychology. But it's, but it's guiding light for crying out loud. That's, that's leading me somewhere. That's, uh, I think that's fantastic. I love that. I- you know, here's the thing I, I will say, and like, as looking back, I got more training from doing that show. Yeah. The education I got from doing that show, I mean, it was like 30 pages of lines a day. Um, my character was like kidnapped, was in an earthquake, sexually assaulted, parents divorced. Um, I uh, uh, was like arrested for fr- like all these different experiences. <laughs> Because in a soap opera, these crazy things happen to you. So as an yeah. actor, you get to like go through these different experiences. Wow. The training ground is incredible. Yeah. So that, that 
did you set out to want to be, did you, did you want to do Broadway? Did you want to do TV? What did you, or did you just, you kind of just did wanted to do it all? Was there a um, specific? So, you know, I actually had, a, a, I had done theater and some, and some film as a young uh, kid before I graduated uh, high school. And then I, I think that guiding light decision was really a crossroads for me because I think as a child actor, I'd always said, Hey, I'll grow up one day and be a doctor, you know? And then I was like, wait, I'm actually choosing acting now. Um, at the time that I, I did guiding light, I also had a band and it was with my uh, friend of mine from Kentucky and we were singing country music in New York city. Um, so we were definitely in the wrong place for it, but we would have these gigs at like the bitter end or CBGBs. And we weren't old enough to even get into the places that we were doing gigs at. Um, what was, what kind of music was it? It was country. Country music. It was country music. And, and we were in New York city doing it. So it was, so I had simultaneously doing that while that, and that's kind of how it's always been for me. I, um, I like, artistic expression. I enjoy yeah. artistic expression. Yeah. It's, it's a hobby for me and it's, and it's my play as mm-hmm. well as my work. And I'm very blessed that, that that's the case for me. So it's almost like, you know, acting was my day job and music was like my like fun and play. And then, and then those world, those have re- gone flip-flopped and flip-flopped and flip-flopped and flip-flopped through my entire career where one will be bringing in the money and the other one will be this, the, this, yeah, the right. hobby and back better. and forth. So, um, but I, 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 I think for me, um, I'm trying to examine because I've been asked a lot, like, do you choose acting over music or is it theater over film or is it, and I'm like, what is that thing that is like stirring in me that you know, I love, I love the live, the element of live. And that's something, yeah. And that is amazing. I, but I, and, and I also love songwriting and producing and Mm -hmm. now I've gotten into directing and writing. Some of it is, is about a moment of inspiration so there is, I don't believe, and we, we're, now we're circling right back to spirituality here. <laughs> because, um, because it always does. Because at the heart of life, <laughs> heart of life, when it comes down to it, we're born to die. And so in the back of us, there's this uh, guidance that we're looking for. Because we can't all call it a muse, call it whatever. We need something to guide us, to help manage all the stuff we're overly ambitious to do. Because we just want to do a lot. Right. Well, you said it right there. It's a guidance thing. So when you're on stage or you're writing a song or you're in a studio and you have an idea, that moment of inspiration, which Mm -hmm. broken down is in spirit, you have a direct connection to your source. That idea is not yours. You are the carrier of that idea. So and for, for me, it, it, that is what I, I, ex, I experience when I get an idea or a moment of inspiration, it's, I call it a God shot. And I got that term from my sister, you know, she's like God shot. And I'm like, oh, but that's what I feel when I create. 
is that when I create, I'm just an off, I'm just an offshoot or the offspring of the, the creator. And so I think that's what keeps me going. So when I'm in a rehearsal room and an idea hits or a connection is made or the audience is there and I get a laugh I never got before because I tried a different choice, the choices that I'm making are being guided by a higher source. And whether that be uh, while I'm writing a song or directing or something like that, uh, that's what I'm addicted to. And if I'm doing acting for a while, I'm in a job where I'm not feeling a lot of inspiration, then I'm like, it's time to write some music because I get an energy, a sustaining energy. It fills my tank to have this source of inspiration. And when I don't have it, I definitely feel it missing. I feel like my tank is not as full. I don't feel like I have the same kind of energy, but when you're doing something live and you are there's two elements to doing something like obviously a moment of inspiration can hit you on stage. Something goes wrong and you've got to figure out what to do. That's a moment of inspiration too. But there's this other element about the live performance Mm -hmm. that is, is so amazing because the it's, I call it an exchange of love. So you have like uh, the artist or the actors or the players they create the music, they play the music, uh, or they do the performance out of love. Right. Right? Their love, their, their creativity, their offshoot. We want to share what we've created. Right. They're presenting, and this is a form of love that they are giving to the audience. Then the audience directly responds to the love by giving love back. Yeah. And then the actor feels that love and gives more love back. Then the audience feels that love and gives more love back. And it's this crazy exchange of love. And that's why everybody feels high at the end. Then they're on their feet. Well, that's what's amazing about the whole process is it is a dance between the two. It is this amazing thing that my world, I've, I've performed a lot, but I haven't been able to, to where you know what the audience may do where you can actually predict mm-hmm. what they're about to do. And that's why it's a two-step dance. And it's fascinating to me. How do you, how do you separate though, you know, obviously because in the entertainment business, you have people that come up to you afterwards and they feel like they know you. And how do you separate the adulation of fans constantly telling at you how wonderful you are versus the fact that they don't really maybe know Laura? How do you, how do you come home and you, how do you, because artists, when we come home after being told how great we are. Or like your spouse is like, pick up the trash and do that laundry. Yeah. Yeah. So because (laughs) you can be as famous as you want and get all the attention and all the, the adulation, but coming home, how do you deal with? Or is it something you just recognized a long time ago? Well, I think, um, well, so I will say this. The audience does get a piece of you. If you are truly connected to your material when you're on stage and your source when you're on stage and you're not just honing, you know, just, okay. you know, doing, you know, going through the routine, disconnected to it, 
when's dinner? But when you're really truly connected to it, the audience does understand you and get a piece of your heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they do understand on some <clears throat> level your soul because you've just revealed it. But you've revealed it through an art form um, that that is, um, you know, they don't know the day-to-day -day you, but they do know um, the nature of how you deter uh, interpret emotion and a little bit of your soul. Yeah. And so for me, um, I, I do appreciate um, having, being able to share that with an audience. And if it's touched someone, then I, I feel like, okay. And I, if I added a little joy to the world or empathy or understanding through my work um, that I'm, I'm, that I, that I am doing the work that I'm supposed to do. So there is that one element, but my father was really always from a very young age, um, encouraging a thoughtfulness about life. Like I was five years old. My father asked me what I thought the meaning of life was. And that conversation happened every single year until the day he died. And, um, he would always encourage modesty and he would say things to me like, you know, when you know your true friends, when you've done something wrong and they still come and visit you in prison, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like he would say things like, set you up for prison. <laughs> yeah. No, but he would say things like, I think he didn't want stuff to go to my head or for me to have an unrealistic view of myself. Yeah. And, um, and so I think he was all about keeping me grounded and encouraging me to have a real connection and real experiences. So, um, I am able to differentiate what it means to have a true connection and understanding with another human being. And you know what that is all about is, um, it's about when, when someone really knows you, they know you completely with all of your faults. And when someone is truly your friend, they don't blow smoke up your ass. Right. They actually encourage your growth as a human being, which means to tell you the truth, which means to, um, to call you out and, and if you want true friendship, you, you have people like that in your life yeah, yeah. that, that tell you, you know, the truth. Yeah. Your husband has COVID. He doesn't now. He, he came out of the woods, but, um, but uh, he, he, last Friday he tested negative and that had okay. been about 10 days. And then we just kind of let it, but he did. So I did, I had had it in March. But we don't know if our son ever had it um, because in March, the, the tests weren't widely available. And right. so the doctor said, you know, hey, just assume your whole family has it. So we didn't really quarantine because by the time I found out I'd had it, I was had had symptoms for like nine or 10 days. It was like, they got to have it at this point. But I was also breastfeeding, which meant I was giving antibodies to my son. And so when my husband got it this time, we got our son Huck tested and, and me tested 
a number of times while he yeah. had, and we never got it. Oh, wow. Did you do so, the, was it the nose test? Yeah. The poke a hole in the brain, the painful. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you feel so violated after. It's like, I need to file a police report. I know, I know. It's, <laughs> so it was just crazy because it meant my husband couldn't help me with him because he was quarantined. Oh. And so I, you know, I have a toddler. They're, they're well, insane. Not only do you have a toddler, but you yourself are like crazy busy. I mean, you've got, right. you're plugged into like a million different things. You, you're a top five billboard recording artist. You know, you've got understudy people that are like legends that like, if I drop some of those names, like Natalie Portman and Britney Spears and, <laughs> and then you're, you're recording music, you're doing a lot of advocacy work um, and a toddler. I mean, what's it like having for the first time in your life, a child well I used to make a joke and when people were like how do you do all these things and I'm like I don't have kids I never realized how right I was about that because there's so much more on my mind there's so much less space in my brain there's so many more things to think about and to plan ahead um, because you're completely responsible for another human being and all of their needs. So clearly you just have a little bit less time. And um, so, so there's so much about it that's uh, that has to do for me with um, time management that I never really had to do before. Some of that is really good for me. Um, and then there's this other element of like feeling this massive amount of love and, and understanding for, um, you know, other women that I never understood or uh, child, but like having this understanding of childbirth and this appreciation of like how incredible it is that it's we can insane. create another being. Yeah. I created a man. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I literally made a man. You made Was it by choice? At one point, there was a man and a woman in here. I know. Um, you know. Do you know what I mean? Like, That's. But but it's like unpredictable. It's like we're not yet at the. So we don't have the science yet to go. Well, I've thought about a man, but I've done the research, and I think we want a girl. Right. Well, unless you do. So in our case, we did IVF because I had trouble getting pregnant because mm -hmm. I was one of those women who was like, I'm going to focus on my career. I'm going to focus on my career. And then you're like, Ooh, wait. And, and I have, I'm actually writing songs about this, about the dilemma of women who, um, I'll give you a quote from a song that I have coming out at the end okay. of January. <laughs> Too young for the bar, so I went to the bank, got a loan for college where all I did was drank, working so hard to repay Sally Mae, going to have to freeze my eggs if I want kids someday. <laughs> and the deal is, that's what happens. So as women, yeah, we're out there. We have these great opportunities now that we never had before, but there's this pressure to do it all. There's a pressure to get a seat at the table. And, um, and so... It's the, like more, now more women go to college than men when women couldn't even get in before. So you have college, they're college graduates, they've got these loans, they're trying to get a seat at the table and they realize if they're going to pay those loans back and they're going to get a seat at the table, they got to stay in the game. Yeah, yeah. And if they stay in the game, 
they're going to reach a point where the clock is ticking and they're going to have to freeze their eggs if they want a family. It's That's this right. whole thing. So anyway, that happened to me. <laughs> um, and so I, we did IVF. We have the choice to choose the sex of our child, but we did not. We didn't want to do that. We just wow. kind of were like, let's just, we said to them, just, let's just pick the best embryo and let's see. And, uh, that's amazing. and so that's, that's what, that's what we did. So we didn't, we didn't know what was going to be. We found out, they let us know the day that yeah, we yeah. were like, it's going to be a boy. Um, <laughs> so I didn't have to wait, you know, the 14, 15 weeks to find out. I knew the whole time. Um, but you know, also I'm, I, I think that we think differently of our children when we know what sex they are and why are we doing that anyway? I have two girls. So like if I had a son, I only have to worry about one penis. (laughs) You know, now it's like, I got, I got two girls. (laughs) So, but I'm, I'm curious though, because you've always used your gifts and talents to advocate amazing things. You know, sexism is a huge problem is a huge problem uh i have so many like personal stories i could share like they say on a christmas story my mother's not had a hot meal in 20 years or something like that once you have a child how has that changed for you and your advocacy for sexism well i gotta tell you um there are just things that happen naturally when you're the mom that become your responsibility you know, obviously you're the one carrying the child. So there's this responsibility you have and, and the connection you have for a good nine and a half months that your husband doesn't have to have or your partner doesn't have to have, which means you're not like, I couldn't drink. I couldn't eat sushi. I couldn't do all these things I wanted to do while I watched my husband do them. And he was trying to be respectful. But really, at the end of the day, when he had a buddy over and he wanted to have a bourbon, um, you know, I'm not going to be a jerk about it. But I'm also just going to be, you know, and so that's when it starts coming in, that resentment there. And then, and then, you know, having the baby as much as I remember my husband feeling really guilty and like having and feeling like his feelings of guilt made him defensive when we first had Huck because he felt like he couldn't do certain things. Like I'm nursing. And so it does make more sense for me to wake up and just give it, give Huck a boob and then we're done. And it's not like there's milk to find or I've got a pump and give him a thing. And, you know, and so it was just, some things just became, just were easier if I did them. But what happens is the, the amount of responsibilities that I then get. Yeah. um, And the lack of sleep that I then get. Um, and then the, bitch, no such thing. the bitchy I get <laughs> is a lot bigger, right? So we, we have to kind of iron out some things. And, and one of those things was the mental load. Yeah. I was thinking about all of these things. Like when was the last time I pumped and I better pump now. And then I've got to clean the bottles and, you know, clean all the stuff. Have they been cleaned that? I got to shut the curtains. Yeah. Um, so the dogs don't bark before I put the baby down. And, you know, there were all of these different added elements and I became responsible for packing him for everywhere we went. And at one point I was just like, okay, I'm going to need some help on some of that stuff. I right. also, 
in our, my husband is pretty tidy and um, I am not. Okay. I've become more tidy as a respect for uh, him and his space. You, you know where things are though. I do. I know exactly where you they are. You know where they are. I, and I he know goes and Kyle. Yeah. It's like you come and you clean. I'm like, I, I had something right here. But, yeah, it was there yeah. in that pile. Which pile? You know, the third or seventh pile. <laughs> the last place I left it, but you cleaned. <laughs> um, That's so, awesome. in, so I'm always the cook anyway. Yeah. Um, and I love what, cooking. What does your husband do? <laughs> well, I said he's pretty tidy. He's tidy. And he's tidy. I will say he worked uh, a pretty intense it wasn't even nine to five. It was like nine to seven thirty PM, you know? And so, you know, we, but what happens is naturally when, when a woman is pregnant and in postpartum, they can't work that have to get like, there are things like some work I was able to do, but I had to really literally take myself out of the game. Um, except for recording. <laughs> I had a recording session planned on the day my water broke. Um, oh, no. Oh, or the no. day after, well, the day I was in labor. Yeah. But because it happened t- like 12 days early. Oh, my gosh. Um, so I was recording right up into the end and writing music <laughs> right up into the end. But in terms of being an actor, like, I just kind of had to take myself out of the game unless they were hiring a pregnant lady. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so a lot of responsibilities have fallen to me and it does make me see that there are just these are these are important conversations that um couples need to have and those 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 conversations to get ahead of it Mm -hmm. as opposed to you're so far behind it that resentment has has grown everybody's angry about something or feeling guilty about another thing if you can get ahead of it and just say like Okay, or pause right in the middle of it and say, I'm starting to really kind of feel some things now that aren't good and I need to iron out what I can do and can't do. Um, but here's the cool part about your grandma being in the kitchen. <clears throat> Guess where everyone hangs out? They all hang around the table. The kitchen. <laughs> it's true. It's so, true. But she, she, that was her way of saying, I love you. Yeah. I, 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 let me make you a sandwich, you know? Yeah. Because grandma sandwiches... Nobody, nobody can touch a grandma. There's no price on yeah. a grandma's sandwich, even if it's Miracle Whip, and which is the worst thing ever invented. But right, you know. So, so, but I think one thing that's always interesting to me is, you know, I'm a firm believer that we need more women to run the show, mm-hmm. because in reality, I think women have been running the show without the uh, attention or the accolades and the, or the awards or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but the more women we have running the show, it seems to me like there's going to be a lot more peace. Well, women tend to be the peacemakers connected to the heart right. of the family. Um, now that isn't always the case in every family, right. but um, but there is like nurturing is a part of our nature, yeah. right? So when you have someone making policy decisions or making company decisions, and their thought is about the, the if they're thinking about nurturing and they're looking at things in a very human way with the heart, 
leading with the heart. I, I think we make better decisions for people. Also, yeah. you know, the majority of consumer, con, consumer decisions that are made are made by women. Yeah. Women do the buying for most families. So why, so they're more in touch with what a family needs typically. So why aren't there more CEOs for, for female CEOs for these products? And then when you think about you know, the family nucleus tends to be the woman, you know, there are definitely things that just innately I'm more in touch with what my child yeah. needs. Yeah. And I'm definitely more in touch with what a woman needs. And yeah. if women are more than 50% of the population and decisions are being made and legislation is being made about women and about children, you do need to have women in places of power in order to accurately make policy about what their true needs are. Um, which is why I, um, I did a video uh, song I had called Get It Girl You Go, which features all of these different um, women who were running for office in 2020. And it is about um, women breaking the glass ceiling. And we've, we now have, I think we, we, there's a record now. There's more female, um, uh, more women in the house now it went from up from 25% to like 30 something percent just in this wow. election. Wow. So that that's great. I think that's really good. One thing though, did, uh, I mean, I can see in the United States, we're making a lot of progress. I, all of this protesting and everything to me, I, I consider it like growing pains. Mm-hmm. This is the greatest country on the planet because we have such diversity. If it was just red roses, it's not very interesting, but when you have such a diversity of flowers yes. in America, and yet we can create these opportunities uh, for people that never had those opportunities before. But then when it comes to dealing with a bully, <laughs> how, does, how does a strong, in your mind, how does a strong political female, um, how can they combat and deal with a very male chauvinistic man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can't negotiate with crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, true. But how do we, 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 yeah, leaders and with the comma, you know, with her winning vice president, that's, that's so historic. But it, well, I think, you know, the difficulty is, um, we are still a patriarchal society and we still have a belief system, whether it be subconscious or conscious, that we believe that men's position should be in power and there should be strength attached to it. Um, and so we, it's so much, I've done a lot of um, digging in history about yeah women's power and women's voices and earliest known law code 2400 BC stated it was Mesopotamia. If a woman speaks out of turn, her teeth will be smashed by a brick. So we have literally earliest known law codes. It's embraces. We, yeah. She ain't got no teeth and they didn't have, they didn't have, you know, um, crowns. Yeah. They did not have those those crowns you could insert. I mean, then she just couldn't eat. But the thing is, is if a woman spoke, violence would be had against her. I mean, you look back at um, Middle Ages, and this this practice was carried on into the um, early 
uh, colonies in the laws of coverture. So we we so the laws of coverture were English laws that were passed down when the English moved to the colonies and mm -hmm. began to colonize. And those were essentially stating that um, once a woman a woman is the the property of her father until she's the property of her husband. Therefore, she doesn't have any say about any business. She can't um, accept money for jobs done. She's got to give that to him. She cannot own property. She doesn't even have custody of her own children. If he were to pass away, um, divorce was illegal. He was legally allowed to reprimand her, including gentle beatings, um, uh, you know, uh, it was called the rule of thumb, which, so it wasn't, you know, thicker than the thumb, which I, you know, which kind of sucks because the larger a whip is, the wider it is, the less it hurts than the thinner. I don't know what that, anyway, because I've been whipped a ton, just so, you it's, know, no, I'm just kidding. You know, I got to tell you, I got to tell you something crazy. My, <clears throat> so my great, 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 18, I'm going to say 1848, my great grandfather, John Taylor, Okay. Okay. When he was 48, he was an apostle in the Mormon church and he visited a family and he really liked the 19 year old girl. So she ended up becoming his seventh wife and my grandma. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, this is good. But yeah, no, seriously, I would not exist without like a polygamous world. And that's so far from that culture now. Like, there hasn't been polygamy, like, within, well, there's still- Well, with the Mormon church, you <clears throat> mean. Yeah, yeah, like, the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But, but as far as, like, the, there's still, like, all these breakoffs and stuff like that. But I wouldn't be here, like, that dynamic. And it messes with my head to think that my grandma was a teenager when this old guy that everybody loves comes to town and then makes a proposal. I can't even, I'm my, I am, I can't believe I'm talking to an actual offspring. Of, oh yeah. What do you want and to I, know? I, I watched Big Love, I, you know, and I actually, um, I know quite a bit about the Mormon faith. When I was 15, I had a Mormon boyfriend and one of, and many of my best friends from New York yeah. who have since come out of the closet were raised Mormon. And um, so I understand quite a bit about the, the church and, I love Mormon people. Here's the thing. I can tell a Mormon something, and I know that shit is going to the grave. I'm not going to tell my secrets because they're going to have a crazy hell dream. And um, so I love, I love Mormon that's, people. So anyway, I just, I'm, I'm putting that out there. But yeah, that's awesome. True. There is a, um, whether it be in, you know, certain religions, certain laws and rules, that have been passed down and passed down and passed down. And if you realize what's really going on is it's about money. You always follow the money. It's always money. follow the money. If you can control the, the what was happening was, no, she can't, she's got to give her property to him. Mm. She's got to, um, she can't, if she's earning money, it's got to go to him. The kids, the assets must go to him. And if we can guarantee she's a virgin and not sleeping around, mm -hmm. then we know those children are also our assets. Mm. 
And so there's, and we can pass down our property to our male assets. So there's a controlling of her body going on. There's this, be- so this is, this is how we've gotten to today mm-hmm. where it actually, ironically, you said 1848, 1848 was the year that um, there was a, an act that allowed women to own property and have custody of her children and to earn that there was a, a big law passed um, that Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who also proposed a woman's right to vote, um, brought right. to the House. So um, it's the first they, gathering of women's rights, July 19th, 20th in Seneca Falls, New York. Yes. Uh, Elizabeth Catton Stanton, a mother of four from upstate New York and a Quaker abolitionist, Lucretia Mott, a Quaker abolitionist. So well, that, I love that. Quakers, so I would say, you know, Quakers were really a part of the abolitionist movement Mm -hmm. and the women's movement came at the tails of the abolitionist movement. So here you have these abolitionists who were very much religious, um, uh, very like realizing, hey, one person is not better than another person in the eyes of God. We must, this is, this is wrong. We have to spread the good word. So when they did that, they also realized, well, hell, women are like slaves too. Let's fight for them. And so um, then that, then the women's movement of that time in 1848 and through the early 1900s came on the tails of the abolitionist movement. Unfortunately, for the, the um, when women got the right to vote, there were black suffragists at the time mm-hmm. um, and who were really a part of this fight, including Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Um, he was fighting for women's right to vote. But what happened was because of all of the extensive <laughs> uh, racism, especially in the South, they did they excluded black women from getting the right yeah. to vote. So it, it, it's, it's a, we have a sordid history. So here's the thing. So you asked this question, I still haven't answered. I'm giving you we, all the history. How, how do we deal with Putin? Right, how do we deal <laughs> or, with- and, and men like him. We, we have to, we have to examine the history and, and, and ask ourselves, why is it acceptable for a man to talk over, to be a bully, to try to control a woman? Mm. And that's because it's been pervasive throughout our history and our subconscious thinking and our collective thinking. But we have to overturn those thoughts. We have to teach, we, we as mothers, we, are, we as women need to be responsible when we are teaching our children what how to respect women and how to speak to women. And, and we can actually, we have, like you said, women have the power. We birth the human race. We raise the human race. We can do a better job at setting a standard for how to treat women than we've, than we've done so far. And so that's how I'm going to say how this whole thing is going to be adjusted is how we communicate, how we tell history, not leaving women out of it, that kind of thing. But when you're coming up against a bully, um, you know, it's, it's, and in the wrong way of thinking, unfortunately, you're going to have to get loud. I had a therapist tell me once, what do, um, what does a, a wild, an animal do in the wild when you, uh, when they're being attacked? They roar. They do. They don't sit down and roll over. So the problem is here is that we do have to organize. We do have to protest. And for those women that are literally up in a debate against someone like that, it's got to be about the facts. 
it's got to be about the facts. Here's this yes, fact. Here's yes. this fact. Here's this fact. I'm not going to add anything extra to this. I'm going to tell you and to be like Kamala and say, I'm speaking. Your turn is done. It is time for me to tell you, you know, and we have to believe that woman in that moment needs to believe that her worth and her value That's right. is just as equal Mm-hmm. as his worth and value. No human is better than another. And right. she's got a right to speak and to speak the truth. But I, I got to tell you lately, I kind of been a vigilante <laughs> about spreading misinformation online. Because it is everywhere. You don't trust any source. I mean, there's, you, we, live, we live in a day now where you cannot trust anything. You have to make your own decision based on your own research and you have to get a dozen sources to even come up with a possibility. You need a doctorate before you post on Facebook. <laughs> you need to have cited those, you know, and I, I, I've definitely done it. I've definitely posted stuff and memes and shit that was totally wrong. And I, but now I'm definitely feeling with, you know, that I've got to be really accountable and responsible about what it is that I'm posting and making sure that this information is true because what happens is that people share it and then share it and share it and share it and they're sharing lies. And so anyway, I, that's, that's kind of a little bit of some of this, but you know, you said something interesting about the, the flowers that make up who we are. And, and the protesting and, and I think it comes back to an issue of equality and it comes back to um, really not feeling, not for people on the inside to feel that they are better than anybody else Mm -hmm. or that they're more worthy of, uh, of a paycheck or they're more worthy of a good education, or right. they're more worthy of healthcare, or whatever these issues that we are, or or life. They're more worthy of life. I, there is a there is a there. It's easy, you know. We're all special because we're all unique, but we're not more special or more better than any other human being. And. Um, I think if a group of people feels as if they have been oppressed and, and collectively viewed as if they are beneath another group of people, that they deserve to rise up against that type of thinking. That's right. And if this is how our country has been built and has, and every law, okay, it's the constitution and how many damn amendments are in it. It's been amend, it's amended to work for right. our society. It's amended to include everyone. And, you know, the way those amendments have been made is that that group of people who feels as if they have been oppressed, they, they get their voices out That's in right. protest, and they expect to be heard. When they are not heard, when they are ignored, mm-hmm. they gotta be louder. Do you know see, what I mean? Yeah, and, and see, that's what makes America so fascinating because we've allowed, through the First Amendment, the right to speak your mind and all these things. And that's why we're, we're making progress. The country, when people start to go, oh, we're about to have civil war, we're about to have, the, the hell, it's 
coming down on us. We're all sinners. Uh, point is, we just got started, and we're learning to get along in the sand pile. It, you know, what's interesting is that we don't get anywhere when we think in terms of us versus them. If you want to talk spiritually, what every, almost every famous prophet from any religion would say that unity and love, um, the accepting, uh, not, you know, that we're all of God, right? Right. Um, the, you know, when you talk about, um, uh, well, anyway, any, whether it be Christianity or, or whether it be Buddhism or what, Hinduism, there is a, there's an idea of the collective oneness that that is, that is of God, that I'm a piece of God, you're a piece of God or source right, or whatever right. you want to call it. And then when we turn on our brother, we're actually turning on a bit on God, yeah. right? Because yeah. that, or turning on the source, turning on that which we have claimed to be faithful of and in that judgment. But the reality is, at least the way that I feel, is that you have an opportunity to create hell on earth for yourself or heaven on earth. And your thoughts, your lack of forgiveness, your judgments, that is only creating internal turmoil mm -hmm. and hell for you. That yeah. is. Yeah. Happiness is a choice. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and these, these books of different faiths are good guidelines. I think you also, when you, when you do take up, we, we always have to, and I believe now, uh, at least my philosophy is to question everything. <laughs> um, I was raised, yeah. I was raised Catholic. Uh -huh. um, in Kentucky. In Kentucky. <laughs> it's like a Catholic in the Bible Belt. Yeah, it is. It is funny. Although um, Louisville, Kentucky, is like raging with Catholics everywhere. Oh, okay. But um, but anyway, you know, I mean, I think I, I was raised very, you know, in a very dogmatic. Stand up, sit down, say this prayer. When I was in high school, we, you know, we took ethics class, we took Bible class. There was all kinds of every every semester we had to pick a religion course and there was you know ethics philosophy was my favorite but i also loved this bible interpretation class it was fascinating so our teacher mr piosky who most students were afraid of um he was brilliant you spoke, you spoke loud so you were you were good <laughs> he was brilliant um and he, this one course, he would take different um, phrase, phrases and um, quotes from the Bible. And he would say, this is what you think this means. And then he said, but this has been translated from four language, languages over thousands of years. So it's important for you to know what these words mean in different languages and also what these words meant 2,000 years ago. Right. I'm like, okay. So, <laughs> so he would go back. You, you do the current, you know, English yeah. version. And yeah. he would go, in Latin, this means this. At the time of translation, this meant this. Goes to Greek. In Greek, this meant this. At the time of translation, this meant this. In Hebrew, there are no vowels. 
So it could mean this, or it could mean this. And at this time, this. At the end of that class, I was like, this shit don't mean shit to me. I gotta do so much work. It didn't didn't add up, which is interesting because the Catholic Church just barely released the the Vaticanus Codex. And the Vaticanus Codex is the earliest document. It's uh, 200 AD. And so you can read that online. And it does vary and it is different. And there's so many different meanings to the word love. There's like three or four different types of love. And so like when you read it in the King James, it's like, you think it means one thing, but it actually means several. So that's why we have all these churches. And let me tell you what Mr. Piosky told a bunch of 17 year old girls in his class, that during the time of the writing of the Bible, virgin meant unmarried, not never had sex. What do you think these girls did when they left that class? No, I'm just kidding. But I... I, here's, here's what I couldn't, I actually think that class 